Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. We are going to have our first panel today on a very important topic, right? It's called the great resignation meets clinical automation. Really what we're going to be talking about is the fight, right? The fight between technology and humanity, particularly at the clinician level. I think since the introduction of the EMR many years ago, with all of its promise, a lot of unintended consequences have resulted And they've really bubbled up to the top in the past few years, particularly with COVID and layering on, you know, doctors and clinicians don't want to be, you know, tapping out for whatever hours a day on a computer. But add to that just the level of dissatisfaction with all of the administrative burden with insurance and not being able to get your patients exactly what they want when they want it and when you need it. And so- Not to be so negative, but we are going to be talking about where things are today in 2023 and possibly how technology, as Gail was saying earlier, right, how how can we make technology bring delight and joy back to the practice of medicine? And so we've got a phenomenal panel. I'm going to briefly introduce them, and then they'll tell you a little bit about themselves. Then we'll get started. So from my left, we have Dr. Yan Chow who is the global healthcare industry leader at Automation Everywhere. Next to Dr. Chow, we've got Kenra Cato, who is also a PhD and a professor at Penn. Now he recently left New York and he was recently at NYP and now he's at University of Pennsylvania and CHOP. And next to Dr. Cato, we've got Dr. John Chalico, who's the National Systems CMIO for Common Spirit Health. I've known John for many years when he was in New York at Northwell. He's still in New York, but now at Common Spirit. So thank you all. Would love to start with you, Dr. Chow, just a brief intro. And when I say brief, I mean like one to two minutes. (laughs) Okay. Only one to two minutes. It's hard for the older people. (laughs) Hey, I'm I'm pretty old too, all right? so Yeah, so I'm a pediatrician. I spent 32 years at Kaiser Permanent having a happy pediatric life. But the last two, eight years, I was a national director for Innovation and Advanced Technology, where we looked at over 2,000 startups in health tech just to inform the Kaiser strategy. And a very fun time. We had a big innovation center and a big program. And then I left Kaiser to become a chief innovation officer in Washington, D.C. at a consulting firm, working with the VA and the DOD. At the time, they were looking at the choice of EHRs, which is a really interesting time. And then after that, I spent two and a half years at Amgen as their digital medicine lead, working on digital trials, you know, sightless trials, remote sensors, things like that, and all topics that are very timely today, actually. And three and a half years ago, I got a call from Automation Anywhere, launching a Greenfield Initiative for Healthcare. I couldn't, I couldn't pass that by. <laughs> so it's great, great, great prospects in automation. So I joined three and a half years ago. Today, we have a dedicated team and seeing a lot of response, mostly pushed by COVID. So a lot of issues, of course, but I love being on the cusp of the transition to next generation healthcare. That's where I see myself. 
Hi, so good morning, everyone. My name is Ken Cato. So I am a, a nurse and my nursing area was in emergency nursing and oncology nursing. Also, before I became a nurse, I was a software engineer and a data engineer. Had a little segue in the army, spent 10 years as an infantryman. And what I spend my time doing is basically trying to figure out how we can take the data that's in the EHR and repurpose it to help support clinical decision making. So I spent a lot of time first at, at Columbia and New York Presbyterian, and now at Penn and CHOP, just basically mining data and then building software on top of, of the, those data to help support clinical decision-making. And I'll talk a little bit more about it today, but one of the, the things that I've been really involved in the last about three years now is a national initiative called 25 by 5, where a whole group of folks came together and said, there's a lot of people talking about documentation reduction, documentation burden reduction, and everyone's doing their own little part, but we wanted to get everybody in the same boat rowing in the same direction. And so we created a, a symposium series around it a few years ago, and now uh, the American Medical Informatics Association, of which I'm a board member, has sponsored a national effort where we have all of the vendors and a lot of leading physician groups and also some policy folks as well, trying to make sure that we can reduce today's documentation burden by 75% in the next five years. Sure. I'm John Chelico. I'm, I guess, a software developer to begin with. In the 1990s, worked for two health IT startups during that time. Ended up going to medical school at, in SUNY Downstate. Ended up doing formal training in internal medicine followed by an informatics fellowship. I said, I did an informatics fellowship when it wasn't cool, but now it's cool. <laughs> but uh, followed by uh, some amazing opportunities for me to be the chief medical information officer at Bellevue Hospital here in the city. I was the director of, of informatics for the NYU Langone Epic implementation in the early, the early stages. And past 10 years, I was at Northwell Health, both as the CMIO for North Shore University Hospital, Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and then for the last six years, the Chief Informatics Innovation Officer for the Health System, where we started the Center for Research Informatics and Innovation at Northwell and through the Feinstein Research Institute. About a year ago, I broke out of my New York bubble and joined the Common Spirit Health, which is, I went from the largest healthcare provider in New York State to one of the largest healthcare providers in the country. And for those of you who don't know Common Spirit Health, we're two health systems, two faith-based health systems, Catholic Health Initiatives and Dignity Health that came together in 2019. We are in 22 states, we're 150 hospitals, 1,500 practice locations. We have about 25,000 years that we work with across the country and about 25 million patients that we care for. Um, in some of the most populated parts of the country, but some of the most less but least populated parts of the country as well. So really our mission is to really use technology to really bring care to, for those that, that need it and, and where, where they can't have it. And I think that's really the, the, the goal of Common Spirit. I think as a platform, I think when successful, a joke we had from the other day, when successful, I think you know we'll have the largest operating integrated delivery network across the country, which really leads well into value-based care and other things. We have three panelists who are truly unique in, in healthcare, right? You, you each really embody this combination of clinical expertise and technical prowess and expertise. The vast majority of the healthcare system is not like that, right? So just to set the stage, in each of your institutions or previous institutions, what is, what's the temperature level like now with both physicians, nurses, techs, just in general, what's it like and what's driving that? 
you want yeah. to start, John? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's much like what's happening in the rest of the country. I think the, the title of this, The Great Resignation, has led to significant staffing shortages. I think we're all across the country sort of looking at changes in the way we, the volumes of patients that we took care of or the different dynamics of the patients. I think there's a different ex, sort of expectation from our patients and our even our providers really post-COVID. Um, you know, I, I want to say it's it's a it's a difficult time, but you know, I I haven't had a year that in healthcare for 25 years that hasn't been a difficult time. <laughs> but to be on to be honest, I, I mean, I think there's unique opportunity. I think there's a unique opportunity to use our technology, and people are embracing technology. And I think COVID has sort of you know got us to where we want it to be. You know, we you know five years from now in some places in telehealth and other things. But I think the expectations is that we can do a lot more sort of asynchronously that we would have otherwise had to do in person and other things. Maybe that's... Yeah, I think in the organizations that we talk to, and we've talked to tons of them, the number one concern is labor shortage. And therefore, labor shortage leads to burnout. <laughs> it leads to, I mean, I saw one statistic that 60% of the healthcare organizations in this country have over 100 positions in their hospitals open that they cannot fill. And you just imagine the burden that places on the people that are still there, that they basically don't want to be there. And so there's a lot more openness to technology because we don't have a choice, essentially. COVID sort of brought that on us. We knew that was a problem going forward for many years, but COVID really brought all this to the fore. And so like I was saying, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would add to that, you know, when I, especially I talked to a lot of nurse leaders and a lot of organizations, and quite frankly, everybody knows what I like to say is that the wheels have fallen off the bus mm. in nursing, basically. You know, it was a kind of perfect storm where there are a lot of nurses. The average age of a nurse right now is 52, I believe. And when COVID hit, a lot of nurses were planning to retire. The average age of nurses were actually higher than they stayed on for a year or two. And then they left. I can't remember the statistics, but something around 25 to 30 percent of new nurses leave the profession after a year of working. Nursing has some of its unique challenges to, to deal with, I think. But, um, you know, similar to what the other panelists said, I like to think of abundance instead of scarcity. And so this is an opportunity. One of the things to deal with in, in nursing as well is just innovation in how we do things. And so this is an opportunity. People are a little bit more open to innovation because of the challenges that they're facing. Okay, well, that, that's a really positive thing that folks are open to innovation because I think what many of us heard for years was that physicians were getting really tired, right, of the old technology. So can you give us some examples of what's actually working and making a positive impact in automation and, and in that opportunity that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, in every facet of your life, whether you're calling a car, delivering your groceries, I mean, there's an expectation that we can do a lot more sort of, you know, independent of, you know, showing up at a store, you know, getting in the car or whatever else. And I think that expectation has really kind of lent itself to, to healthcare. And I think across common spirit, I think one of the things, you know, we have staffing shortages. We can't fill spots that are vacant in our clinics across the country. 
And I think that has really kind of said, well, what, what burdens can we sort of remove from front end staff? I mean, I think that automation has sort of led its, its place to actually create the virtualized environment where you can actually check into your visit, pay your co-pays, do all your insurance. It's almost like a very low bar compared to everything else we do in technology, but it's something that like we are sort of saying is the standard. And we're doing that in all our EHR platforms and everything else across the country. And I think, you know, it's little things like that lending ourselves to sort of the earlier our earlier speaker is that is the sense is that is that that sort of opportunity lets you sort of get to the doctor's office more efficiently get all of the sort of the front matter out get all your consents out of the way and really kind of jump into whatever else and that's sort of even now getting to another level is that you know we've actually sort of hey you're here for a headache you're here for abdominal pain you're here for whatever you know let's start the questioning early we know we're going to ask you so let's just ask all those things ahead of time. So, so having really an intelligent sort of clinical intake of, of a patient. Patients are expecting it. I think the opportunity for us to sort of start the visit at, a, at another level where we only have limited time with you is the opportunity really for our providers, our, our staff and others to really kind of, you know, take things up to a notch. And I think that is really only lend itself well through, you know, automating some of those tasks. Yeah. And I think just to add to what some of you talk, talked about, doctors hating the old technology, what happened was that when, when the government pushed everybody into electronic health records and they just were certifying records like crazy and, and everybody was buying records, what they did was move the old paper processes into the web. <laughs> That's what they yep. did. They didn't think about, is this the right process? Should we do anything with it? So. So we've done that. And so, of course, on the web, on the software, now we get a lot more data, right? So now the problem is a lot worse. What we used to do with paperwork is 100 times worse. So no wonder they hate it, right? That the next step is to, like, think about healthcare. Like, what, is she, what should it look like? Right? I mean, I think we haven't done that work yet. I think that's a hard, hard thing to do because with the new technology, healthcare could look very different. Uh, why should we humans be doing machine work? And so... But I think it's going to take a while. Everything takes a while in healthcare. Well, can I ask on that? What are the incentives for health systems to to do that? Right? It's so clear that we need it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm forgetting her name right now, but she she just left HCA. She was the chief nursing executive, and one of the one of the things that that they did at HCA in the last couple of years around nursing is they quantified how much it actually costs to replace a nurse. And that actually happened just before the pandemic. And it was a real powerful kind of cost-benefit analysis because it, it, allowed, it, it allowed the leadership to free up money to invest in automation. They had started documentation reduction work three years ago before the pandemic because they, they re recognized that it actually costs more money for people to leave because they find their work burdensome than to, to fix some of the things and retain them. So I think that's a really good example of, you know, what's important. And also just, I'm sorry. No, I, I mean, I, I was going to say that, I mean, I think there's things that are pushing us in that direction as health systems. I think during COVID, there was sort of a lax in the, you know, in how we bill and how we document. So some of those things have sort of, sort of had that tail end in the sense that do we need to record a review of systems? Do we need to do other things on every visit? I think some of those things are now, you know, we had we had the opportunity to again take care of patients without sort of having all the documentation burden. Some of those rules change. Some of those things are still sticking. Some of the changes in telehealth, obviously, with renewal of how we bill for telehealth, allowing us to do that. So 
the drivers are really, yes, the health system, the drivers are some of the EHR burden, but some of the drivers of what EHRs really are, are billing systems, right? Robust billing revenue cycle capture systems, right? I mean, as a primary care provider or as a hospitalist in the hospital, I mean, I would rather just block my note rather than, you know, you know, really what I want to tell my next provider or next level patient is everything's the same and I raised your blood pressure medication, I'm done. Like, but I have to write a three-page note to drop a bill. <laughs> and and like those are the things I think that were sort of pushing us in, in, in the and, and that those things are have changed a little bit during COVID, but I think under under sort of the current sort of fee for service again borrowing from our current our, our last speaker I mean I think once we get to push to value and the opportunity for us to sort of unburden ourselves from sort of proving ourselves that we we did all this during a visit is really going to change the dynamic and I think that's where you know I see the, the going and and. To the point of value-based care, so all these organizations have signed into that arrangement, have to maintain the quality of care with fewer people. <laughs> and so, so that is a driver. The other thing is there are a lot of new regulations that have come in the last couple of years, like visibility to peers, providers that we come in, have come, No Surprises Act, Information Blocking Rule. All those things require a lot of resources, which organizations don't have. And so we're finding that for many reasons, it's driving organizations to really look outside the traditional solution, which is to hire more people. And even hiring more people to the nursing point, I've talked to organizations where contract nursing is so expensive and they're not devoted to your organization. They, they work and then they leave and they get to retrain the next one. So there's a lot of pressures that are making it almost in a desperate situation and people need to change. On the provider side, what are some of the tools for automation that you've seen actually that they like and that are being embraced and are working the way they should in like in other parts of our life, right? Yeah. Uh, so, where things help us. Yeah. So one of the things, both the, or, the organization I just left, you know, Presbyterian and CHOP, where I just landed, they've gone in really big and secure chat. And that's something that I think has really changed, you know, in the inpatient setting, at least being able, it's, it's a simple thing, but being able to communicate with your care, care team has really been helpful, I think. So that, you know, obviously not every institution has the resources to spend the, the big bucks for that, but that is a technology that I feel has, has been a game changer. And it, it actually, from the hospital innovation side, it, it's driving the ways that we think people can do medicine, you know, because we have people that are doing all kinds of interesting things right on their iPhones. And then it, it makes us think, oh, they don't actually need to go to the EHR to, to do that task or get that information. And so I think because of COVID, we haven't exploited it as well as much as we can, but I think that's something that has been working and will continue to change things. You know, we, we often talk in, on the provider side, sort of everyone practicing up to their license. I mean, oftentimes we have providers or, you know, docs, APPs, and PAs, NPs doing things that they otherwise filling out paperwork and other things, even from our nursing staff or our MAs. I think, you know, we see a lot of promise using robotic process automation to do sort of those redundant mundane things. I mean, if a provider can have a chart reviewed and, and have the question answered with the provider, with a patient prior to their visit about their cancer care or cancer screening, right? And really at the time of the visit, really just review that just tee up a colonoscopy or a mammogram or whatever else. I think we've seen significant improvements in, in a lot of the, 
the the redundancy or the other things like that a provider would need to do five minutes before every visit. And I think that's I think where we can automate things. And again, doesn't does a does a provider need to do that? Does an MA need to do that? Does a staff an administrative staff person need to do that? Probably none of the above. We can really kind of get that into the into the patient's hands. And then again, free up the providers to sort of work to the top of their license to do the best things that they can do, or the nurse or the MA or whatever the case may be. I think all of them can do more and want to do more sort of meaningful things versus sort of the things that are sort of, you know, asking every patient if they smoke or not. I mean, like, or asking every patient when they got their last colonoscopy. I mean, easy peasy things that you could really do and expect to do sort of prior to your visit. So I think that's where I think we're, we're definitely, you know, seeing the promise. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think physicians are, and nurses are in a place where it doesn't take a lot to make them delighted. <laughs> to be to be honest, and the the biggest success stories are like just a little thing that they just hate doing, and you automate it. It's like, oh, we love you forever. One I of wish the that were all alive. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Start small. Medicine is target rich. I mean, it's target rich. There's so many things you can't automate everything, right? So, so you look at it and you go, okay, what makes the biggest difference? Or financially, morale wise, whatever. And the, one example is that in the, in the UK, you know, we work with the NHS, National Health Service. So in the middle of COVID, when patients were flooding into the hospital, nurses had to check the oxygen tank levels for COVID, obviously. And so they, they would take a, bit of, a little bit of time, but they'd check for every patient. So they wrote a bot in 12 hours to check it for them. 100% accurate. End of the year, it saved 1,500 hours of nursing time. That's huge. In the middle of COVID, right? So that's the kind of stuff you don't need a, a big thing, just a little thing. You know, it works. I I love that insight, by the way, because we often in, on the tech side think, you know, like go for the bells and whistles and all the cool stuff. And we will talk about chat GPT, don't worry. But it's often the little stuff. Like as a patient, just getting a text reminder, right, that my appointment is tomorrow. Yeah. Excellent, you know? You're yeah, going to say can something. I just add something? Yeah, so, sure. so John had talked about offloading things to patients. I think it's really important, especially in the tech area, when we think about it, to make sure that we meet patients where they're at mm-hmm. and understand patients. You know, I had I had an experience. I had volu- when, when the COVID vaccine first came out, I volunteered to, to give injections. And I was at the armory up in Washington Heights giving injections. And this woman came in and she was clearly not that healthy. And she only spoke Spanish. And I started talking to her and she had a caregiver with her. And I found out that she'd been trying to, she'd had a stroke and she'd been trying to schedule follow-up and she couldn't because they were only calling her in English and no one, no one in her house spoke Spanish. I mean, spoke English. And it was actually, it was a good example of secure chat. You know, I use secure chat to talk to all of her clinicians and, and it also turned out that her, one of the clinicians she was trying to contact had just left the organization. But I just think, you know, we, we really need to make sure that the technologies that we're using for patients and, and the things we're asking patients to do to understand what, they, what they, their technical capability is and making sure they can actually do it as well. Yeah, I would say, I would say the same of our providers. I mean, I think different pieces of our providers sort of take sort of different pieces of technology more than others. I mean, and I think that's something where you really have to sort of take into consideration people's preferences yeah. and how they like it. You know, we were talking the other day about pajama time, right? 
you know, we said, oh, providers, you know, have increased pajama time. They go home and document stuff. And we have some providers and, and I, you go to them and be like, well, why do you have so much pajama time? He's like, well, I want to make the soccer game. <laughs> I want to go home and I'm fine sort of going home and taking, you know, making myself a cup of tea and finishing my notes. You know, but, you know, and I, I think that there's different sort of preferences in how people want to work. And I think that flexibility is something where many of us are now working from home. Our, our, it changes in sort of the dynamic, but people yeah. need to sort of understand, you know, how, how that sort of technology could be best used by that person. How are you finding the adoption of this hybrid virtual care, right? Obviously, COVID, you know, virtual care digital care exploded and you were, you know, earlier you were talking about how we just, we had paper records and we just digitized them, right? We didn't think about the process. Many are saying the same about virtual visits, right? You're just putting a doctor or nurse online and not thinking about the process. How are you finding your clinicians reacting to it? Adoption? Where, where has it gone since COVID? I would say it's probably early. Okay. <laughs> a lot of skepticism and even a lot of uncertainty. You know, with COVID, people had to do telemedicine, remote sensing. But I was talking to my doctor, who I know, and, and he said, you know, he had one patient, for instance, that was a woman who complained about chest pain or something, you know, typical. Didn't sound very serious. But somehow he had the sixth sense to make her come in. And it turned out she had a problem in her abdomen, which was pretty serious, which you cannot tell from telling So things like that, and the fact that there's really no best practices defined yet for telemedicine make it kind of risky. And so you kind of on your own as a doctor, your license is on the line, you know, you're practicing that way. But I think it is a future. We'll have better technology in the future to understand patients better. And I don't know that younger patients don't prefer the virtual interface to in, in person. It's fairly interesting right now. It's true. It's a, it's a little bit of the information overload, the fact that you can automate stuff and have that asynchronous visit. I mean, if a provider doesn't have sort of a time set aside for his day to review all of that information coming in, you know, that patient who said they have chest pain or the patient says, you know, I'm not feeling well or on a behavioral health survey or something to that effect, and, and it may be something, some sign of something more imminent, those things I think are, are, you know, again, they could be just now be fed into the chart without really, and, and that's concerning for us. I mean, they can be fed into the chart. There's documentation that that person had chest pain and never was addressed. And I think that's always been sort of the, 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 the piece. And I think there has been sort of a couple steps back, especially in, in, in some things around behavioral health and others, and where you, you, you really have to have the conversation. You really have to have the one-on-one. And I think that that you know you can automate so much, but I think there are some things where it's a feeling. But I will say, in, in sort of my prior health system, I think we played a lot with early warning scoring systems, and I think that's something where you could really take a lot of surrogates for for some of that. You know, in like an eight hundred bed hospital, we you know you can't have a nurse in every bed, you can't have a doctor in every bed, but if you have an MA going around taking vital signs and taking a couple other things, where as a, as a nurse or a doc, you walk in the room, you're like, that patient looks sick. Well, what are you saying? The patient's tachypneic, the patient's, you know, diet and maybe, you know, a little bit, you know, diaphoretic or whatever. And, and I think you see that or you, you kind of interpret that, but, you know, could we put all those things together and ring the bell early where you have, you are collecting vitals on a sort of ongoing basis? Well, 
can we put that all together and ring the bell early? And I think there's some hope in, in really kind of putting, piecing that together. But what's the version of that for someone who's feeling depressed and, and alone at home? Like, is there, are there other things that we can take into consideration from other data that we have that can maybe clue you in that this person needs help, that person may not? Or, you know, I, I often say the simple things, but like the sensor in your house saying, hey, mom didn't open the refrigerator today. What's going on? Like, that's all I need to know. Like, if the refrigerator was open today, like someone went in the kitchen, she got up, everything was fine. But like, and I think those are things we have to kind of think about. Also, the other thing is talking about decision support. I think the augmentation of physician nurses is great. You know, so so warning signs, scores that prioritize your patient this as you round on patients, things like that. But when it comes to the area of decision support, Kaiser actually did an experiment years ago where they had a very complex mathematical approach to recommend what to do with the patient at the point of care. And they rolled it out in Hawaii. And to, to, universal, <laughs> to universal skepticism. And the doctors didn't want to use it because the patient would say, why do you say that? And they couldn't explain it, right? It's the explainability issue. And yes, the AI is looking at 300 factors but you're never going to explain it to the patient. So the, the human part is really important. The doctor has to be able to say, this makes sense. And it's why, why did it recommend this or not that? And it's, it's, you need to do that for the patient as well. Now, one other, one other thing comes to mind, I think, is that you can sort of have the normal conversation with your patients, but really kind of put it in context of, you know, how can the computer help me document this? And like, you, you know, if you just put the computer aside, have a conversation with your patient, you as a doctor now have to spend that extra time after the conversation to document what you just heard. And I think there's now, you know, this sort of push towards ambient sort of yeah. documentation where, you know, the bot or whatever else can sort of be listening in the background, really interpreting what it is, filling in the notes, doing all those checkboxes you need for your insurance companies. But I think that there, I, I, I haven't, I, I, we're starting that kind of, we're starting that, but I, I can't say it's entirely there, but like, could you have yeah. the good old traditional thing and, and, and not burden the doctor to rush to write his note before he sees the next patient? And I think that's something to think about or, or not having him do it later that evening or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So I, there, again, there's hope, there's nitus of, of an opportunity, of many opportunities, but you know, what mixture of things are going to make it a good sort of scenario? Even years ago, I, would, I thought that the ideal EHR is where you walk into the room with a patient, there's a video camera and, and a microphone, and you just do your thing. And all of a sudden, that stuff magically shows up in the chart. Yep. <laughs> and, Almost and you just have to reprove it. Right? Yeah. But yeah, that would be ideal. The technology when you're recording, right, a session or anything, you can get it, you can get it transcribed yeah. within about three minutes with multiple services, mm-hmm. right? It's incredible. So... I can't see how this would be far behind where you can. So that brings us to AI, which, of course, everyone loves to talk about AI. And now we've got chat GPT and generative AI, which is the buzzword for 2023. Just if you if you don't remember anything today, just remember generative AI. You will hear it a lot. So do you see what do you see for that in your organizations? Yeah. So, I mean, I think. AI is one of those things that I spend a lot of time thinking about because I do that kind of research and I also hate it at the same time because if anybody's old enough, it reminds me of, you know, the internet 
in the ni- early 90s. Where the interweb? The interwebs, yeah. In the, sa- in the same sense that we really don't know what we don't know at the end of the day. That's what I think about AI. Um, first of all, it's not new. You know, a lot of the methods we use have been, people have been doing it since the late 60s. But it, it really, I think a couple of things from my perspective are really important, especially in nursing. One is that the clinicians are involved in from the beginning of the development of any products that we're talking about. You know, we find in engineering, there's a saying, you know, a solution in search of a problem. And we find a lot of that, I think, in artificial intelligence. Jan mentioned, you know, the, the explainability part of it as well. The explainability part is really important because the AI can be, it can, it can tend towards something that it, that's important to a machine, but it's not important to a human, right? Like it can generate information. And so I think all of those things are really important. And then at the end of the day, just like the interwebs, I think it's really important to understand where we are and what we can actually do with it, as opposed to what, you know, whoever's trying to make a lot of money is is selling us that we can do. But, but th- there is obvious power in AI. It just, I think people just need to be very knowledgeable and there needs to be clinician expertise infused in it in every step of the way. I mean, the the one sort of fear factor of, of it all really is the fact that, you know, no one place has all the information necessary to sort of, you know, feed these algorithms. In the end of the day, we haven't solved the core pieces that we don't have all your data in one place or all in one EHR. You know, it may sort of suggest you may need a mammogram, but you may have gotten your mammogram somewhere else that's not documented in the chart or or whatever the case may be. So... This technology, any technology can only be best, the best it can be is, is to kind of have access to, you know, all the data that it has. I think, I think that's the problem. That is the problem. I mean, it's old yeah. technology, but we haven't solved the problem that we don't have one ubiquitous record of your life or, or everything. And I think we don't have our information sharing together very well between healthcare systems, whether you call it a technology problem or a culture and politics problem. But I think that is the minus of it is that these are not, you know, intel- they're only as intelligent as, as the information you give them. Yeah. And I also want to, you know, so I've done some work on, deter- on using machine learning to predict deterioration. And one of the really eye-opening things I found was that the machine basically replicated bias in the clinician. So we found that, for example, white patients were, their clinicians were paying much more attention to white patients that are deteriorating than non-white patients. Mm. And something like that, you know, of course we adjusted for it in our calculations, but something like that, it's important to understand how the models are working so that you're not replicating those kinds of things. So that's what, what I point out about really being knowledgeable about how it's working and having clinicians involved is, is really important because you will, you know, anybody who's ever worked, if you've ever let a chatbot off, go on the internet and try to learn, you know, it comes back as a horrible racist chatbot, right? Like, and so, and that's just what the internet looks like. So I think it's important for people to, to really understand the limitations, really understand how it's working so that you can produce some beneficial outcomes. Just kind of curious, how many people have tried ChatGPT? Just raise your hands. <laughs> there you go. It's great. I mean, I tried it, and now, you know, there was a Princeton student that wrote a program called Zero GPT to find out if it's really written by ChatGPT. So we basically have AIs fighting each other. So 
I'll have my AI talk to your AI in the morning. <laughs> so I think it's a really interesting time. And the issue with it, one of the issues with ChatGPT, just like when you talk to the doctor, when you talk to your doctor, you trust that he or she has your interests at heart. Mm-hmm. They've been trained, they're certified, the organization says it's certified, they have experience. When you hear something from ChatGPT, you don't know where it came from. I think that's the issue. What's the provenance of the data that it used? I mean, you may not agree. And so I think if we present that as a patient interface or a doctor interface, we need to make that clear so that people understand the limitations. Well, I'd love to hear from the audience if there are any questions. So the question was from from tools that ask patients to fill in information before the visit, and I've done these, how much is the doctor willing to give up, right, before the visit? And I'd like to add to that, how much does the doctor actually look at it before the visit? I think that's a good question. I mean, to, to be totally honest, I think most of the stuff that's automated are the sort of the mundane. It's it's your registration, your insurance, your copay, your consents for treatment and other things, right? I mean, doctors have no issues. And front front desk staff will hug the patient when they come in instead of to ask them all those questions. So none of that. I think we are having issues with sort of some of the pre-visit planning, as we call it. A lot of the, you know, the question and answer, right? I mean, again, it's sort of very robotic. And I think we can only do decision trees as best we can to, to say, say, we may call it AI, but at the end of the day, it's like choose your own adventure. <laughs> and it may sort of take you down the wrong path in, in questioning or whatever else. So Oftentimes, is it wasting time with the provider that they have to review now something and now rejigger the, the, the whole conversation you just had with the text bot online? So I, again, I, I, think, I think for some things, it works very well. For some things, I think we need a little bit more. Like I said, like in behavioral health, we need a little bit more work. So I think that, that there's, there's, there's certain just things that are simpler to automate than others. So I, I mean, most of our providers are receptive of the fact that like, this is helping them and it can help them, you know, if we can incorporate it into their documentation, which is burdensome, you know, have that HPI, that, that, that pop into their HPI a part of their note is, is a key, key thing that I think people are welcome to, but they have to get used to it. The other, I'd like to add to that too. The other issue is when I was trained as a physician, no matter how many pre-visit things that they went through, you were trained to, you still have to ask the same questions. And that's one of the issues about patients. You know, why didn't I tell this to the computer or the nurse before? Because when you ask it yourself, you can detect other things, right? Like, did they really intend to say what they put down? Like, every patient was put on what you think they, what they think you want to hear. And so you can tell as a physician. So you ask it to make sure so that when you do your recommendation, you're actually recommending, recommending on truth. And so that's an issue. You know, I mean, that's an issue. Like I took my mom to the doctor last week and she had significant spinal surgery over the past couple, six years with 23 screws in her back and everything like that. She complains to me every day. We go to the neurologist, like, tell them, oh, I'm fine. And I'm like, no, you're not fine. (laughs) (laughs) Or like... It's like, it's, it's like, it's like, I, I, I'm like, it's funny. I can't, my mom can't go to the doctor without my dad or me in the rooms. Cause it's like, <laughs> she's just from the old school of like, I, I, I'm fine. I'm like, but you're not fine. <laughs> like they're here to help you. And I think that, that it's, it's funny. It's like, yeah. try to read that between the lines. <laughs> okay. So you guys talked a lot about the problem and you, you, a little bit about the automation. Maybe I missed it. 
but I'd like to hear about your favorite things that you've seen in your systems and your experience lately for where automation or AI or chatbots or what have you have really just helped and had a really positive impact on reducing, you know, the fourth of the quadruple amps? Yeah, it's so great question. It's not in my system, but a colleague of mine is who's in St. Louis, University of Washington. They have in their hospital, basically somebody had the great idea to put an Alexa in the um, supply room. And if you've ever worked as a nurse, which I have, you spend a lot of your time running around getting supplies. And, you know, clinicians or, you know, spend a lot of time and, and basically it's a closed system that they built with a, with a, with a Amazon smart device where basically they tell it that they need a new supply. It goes it, and it sends it down to, to the supply, supply room. And, 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 you know, so in real time, instead of going to the next unit and stealing their supplies, <laughs> you can just tell the smart speaker that you're running low on whatever and it helps you know, make the, the supply chain a little tighter. So that's something that's relatively simple, but, and they, you know, they've done the metrics on it, it saves lots of time, but it makes people very happy too. I would say one of the goals in Common Spirit Health is we have, you know, again, hospitals in 22 states, some in the most sort of heavily populated areas, large academic centers, you know, but we have, we have care in places where it's like a desert. I mean, you know, 10 bed hospital, not another care site for 400 miles. And I think, you know, the opportunity and one of the missions of Common Spirit is to bring care to where pa patients are physically, mentally. And I think that's where I think we're, we're using technology to bring the specialist to the, to the patients. And I think that's something to really kind of really think through is that how can we have that expertise of you walking into an academic medical center? And I think that's been the biggest change of me leaving New York where I can throw a stone and hit another Ivy League medical school. Uh, John, before, can you explain, can you just paint the picture of what some of these hospitals look like? So like, like North Dakota. Think, yeah. think of a 10 bed hospital in North Dakota with, um, with 10 beds, two are ICU beds and one doctor covering the urgent care, the urgent care, the ICU, the 10 beds patients in the, in the hospital and the primary care clinic. It's really that, I mean, that is where we are. We're not so far fetched. I mean, you take some of our practices in dignity health and you go 20 miles out of San Francisco, you're in rural America and, and you have these sort of deserts of care. And I think that's where, you know, we may take it for granted or we may think, Oh, that doesn't happen in this country. But to be honest, like, you know, using technology and, and where we can to sort of, again, ring the bell when someone needs help or, or, or bring the care or the, the teleprovider to, to that, to the, to the foot of the patient, you know, may, you know, may ultimately sort of save them a 400 mile trek to somewhere else or even getting in a plane to get care. Huh. Huh. <laughs> 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 but I mean, to, to, to that, to that point, I think that's where I see, I see huge successes in how we introduce technology. Yeah, let me say. Yeah, so so the, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Big example. Yeah, actually, probably in, a, in my time at Kaiser, I was innovation director, saw over 2,500 startups. And probably one of the most interesting was, there are two that were really interesting that, stuck, that still stick in my mind. One was an optimization startup where they would look at all the hospital processes 
and automate, you know, where people should be and should be doing what and so on and so forth. And they did in San Francisco, in one of the community hospitals. It got them an extra hour of OR time. That's huge for a community hospital. The problem was surgeons hated it because there's no more coffee time. <laughs> so you have to be fully working all the time. Yeah. And that's the human part of it, right? Well, we, we've used things like, I mean, some of our primary care clinics have, you know, RFIDs on all the patients, all the doctors, all the equipment. And I think it's, it's been really, you know, things like this patient's been, hasn't interacted with somebody for 10 minutes yeah. and having someone say, hey, the doctor's coming or things like that. I've really kind of felt, and people have really felt a sort of a, a, an understanding of what's happening. No one ever intended that to happen, but at least be able to sort of catch some of those things. And the, the other thing I saw that was really interesting was that not a tech innovation, but a business model innovation that was supported by tech. And the idea was for this startup was that you have these home health aides that go in and see people at home every day or almost every day. They know what the people look like. They know any changes in the skin, the, the, the temperament, and so on and so forth. So why not empower them with an iPad that they can just check a checklist on this patient having a skin rash like this? In fact... It, doesn't, it wasn't even in English. It was just pictures. And so the check to check, because these folks are like, they're from other countries, you know, they the home health aides. They're lowly paid, but it really improved the pickup of the early signs so yeah. that they could prevent. Because anything they check is going to go to the nursing case manager who's going to call the patient. It breaks the mind sort of, we're always talking about technology innovation and things like that. Uh, at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Long Island, at, my, at, at Northwell Health, we really had... A brand new built the emergency room in the sort of the borderline of Queens, Long Island. And I think we built this this emergency room to handle 80,000 visits a year, right? But the way things are going, you know, we knew that that emergency room needed to sort of have 120,000 visits a year in upcoming years. We weren't going to rebuild the emergency room. So we kind of did, we did something around something called split flow. So if you actually come into the, come into the, the emergency room walking, <laughs> you kind of go down this path where it's like sort of a, a process where we, 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 we ask the right questions, we do everything. Tests are ordered, blood work is ordered. You go to the waiting room, but instead of calling it the waiting room now, which was this beautiful, you know, cathedral ceiling and lit up place, you're not just waiting for you to see your doctor. You're what we called it the results waiting room. And the waiting room was now only a six chairs at the entrance of the ED. And that dynamic of allowing us to sort of change the, that waiting room, which now had like, I don't know, 60 people in it, to beds. I mean, that was the technology innovation where that, that chair became a bed. And so if you came in lying down, you went down the traditional path in the emergency room. But the ability for us to sort of change that dynamic of like, these are all the things we're going to do anyways, once you see the doctor, to this sort of what we call split flow allowed that emergency room that was built for 80,000 visits a year to sort of go to 120 visits a year. The only thing that came to me as CMIO was, was can you make this chair a bed <laughs> in, 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 the, in the EHR? And I think that's sort of, you know, thinking a little bit differently about how we just normally do things. You know, in another area that's kind of related during COVID, people might wonder, how do we get these COVID vaccines? So that was actually a very good lesson in terms of how you re-engineer an industry. One of the lessons is that they did as much as they could in parallel. Where they used to do serial, they did parallel. Processes that use the same machine in parallel. And you know, we haven't done that kind of thinking in healthcare. Yeah. That sort of process re-engineering. But it's a good lesson. Absolutely. So last question I'll ask, and then we're gonna go to lunch. 
we've talked a lot about challenges. What what makes you optimistic in the next five years, five to 10 years, that things really will change? I'll start with you and just go down the line. I mean, I think the fact that we see, you know, move towards value, I think the opportunity for us to change some of our documentation burdens with our insurance payers and things like that has really changed the dynamic of us really trying to do the things. I think everyone is faced with the fact that something's broken and we need to fix it. And the, 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 the move towards more openness with our EHR platforms and data being shared, all of these things are really kind of really putting us in a good spot where, you know, I spent now, you know, a good 25 years in healthcare IT and informatics. And I think I've seen sort of now the promise of, of, you know, this is where we need to be. There's no other way to fix it. Yeah. And so for me, I'm hopeful because, you know, we've talked a lot about clinician burden today, but the leaders are burdened as well. And that's just been my experience. And I think that that there's a lot of, there's been a lot of complaining in my, you know, 20 some odd years in healthcare. But now that the decision makers are really burdened, people are open to, to trying innovative things and, and, and thinking outside the box, which was an issue in healthcare before. You know, healthcare is the way you're trained as a clinician. You do what you know works. You don't, you don't go out and do something wild and crazy, right? And, um, and not that innovation is wild and crazy, but, but I think we're at a place where everybody's ready for innovation from the top down, bottom up. So it makes me hopeful. What I'm seeing is that I think the healthcare industry is opening up. It's becoming more, data's becoming more liquid. And so the government is really pushing hard. And I think we're finally getting to a place where we may have free exchange of healthcare data, maybe. <laughs> after all the lawsuits. <laughs> so, so we have no surprise that information blocking rule. We have all kinds of things, a fire API and things like that. So I'm hopeful that healthcare will become much more free market where people will get value for the dollar they're spending. Yeah. And we'll have visibility to do that. And as a result, the competition would be much better for both providers and payers and for patients. So that's, for me, that's optimism. It took a long time to right. get there. Okay, well, in, in five years, we'll come back to this very place and we will check each one of those. Um, meanwhile, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation and thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.